0: Beloved, the most important thing you will do today or any day of your life is to take the word of God into your hands and read it and hear the voice of God speaking to you so that he can change you forever by it. We study chapter by chapter and verse by verse the word of God here at Good Shepherd Church. So at this time, I ask you to take a Bible and turn with me, if you will, to the fourth chapter chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians in the New Testament. Well, it was the day of the big race when the starter raised the gun and said, On your mark, get set. It looked like every other hundred-meter dash. The contestants were lined up in the starting blocks. The crowd was on the edge of their seats in suspended anticipation. When the starter fired the gun... The contestants sprang out of the starting blocks, and even the casual observer could tell something was different. This was the special Olympics, and it was special because all of the contestants were developmentally and physically disabled. But it was special for a far greater reason than that. It was special because of the way that hundred meter was run on this particular day. The runners had moved down the track, shoulder to shoulder. Suddenly, one of the young women tripped, sprawling headlong on the track and turned over in some amount of pain and not a little embarrassment. The rest of the contestants moved on for 10 or 15 meters or so. Then, without any communication among themselves, they all stopped, turned around, and jogged back to their fallen friend. They picked her up off the track. They comforted her. And then, arm in arm, they all ran together to the finish line. You see, those runners would rather finish together than win the race individually. Dear Good Shepherd Church, when I heard that story, I thought of the family of God. Isn't that what the body of Christ is to be all about. All of us in our fallenness have spiritual, emotional, and relational disabilities. The great Christian philosopher of the previous generation, Dr. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know him. He's great. What's his name? We spoke of him last night. Yeah, you forget too. Francis Schaeffer. Stick to the script, Pastor. You've only got the... Francis Schaeffer, uh, he he had a saying, as he instructed so much of us in that generation of mine when I was a young person. He said, look around you in church. We're all a little bit skits. That is, we've all got our disabilities. But God's grace makes us special in his sight and special to one another. The Christian life is more, of course, of a long journey than a 100-meter dash, but God has given us what we need, and he makes it clear that we are not in the race for ourselves. Neither are we in the race by ourselves. He calls us to run arm and arm together. As was the case for the Apostle Paul and for the Christians at Philippi in the first century the journey, remember, was excruciatingly difficult at times. Obstacles and pitfalls abounded. But this letter has had the recurring theme, the theme we borrowed back at the beginning of this series of messages, that in Christ there is joy in the journey and there is peace for each new day until the Lord brings us safely home to the finish line, home to himself. Well, we have come to the end of the epistle. And in the apostles' final words of love, encouragement, and appreciation to this congregation is also revealed the believer's secret to contentment. I have a one-word title, if you noticed in the printed program, to this message. Only one word is needed, if you can get it. Contentment. Well, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and to behold these wonderful things out of his word on this vital subject of contentment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this much we know, that true and lasting contentment is, is not something to be found even in the greatest resources of this world's treasures. Neither is contentment something that we could ever find of ourselves, within ourselves. But we do thank you for this portion of your word that so clearly unfolds the mystery of learning to live lives of peace and of joy and of contentment regardless of any and all circumstances, good or bad. How great is your wisdom and how kind you are to teach us these vital lessons of life. Speak today into the deepest part of our longings and be the source of all our true joy. We ask in the lovely name of your Son and our only Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, in the closing lines of this letter, what we actually have is a first-century apostolic thank-you note. Uh, This was the congregation, you remember, that had such a deep affection and gratitude for their founding pastor that as soon as they heard he had been imprisoned, they spontaneously and corporately had the desire to, well, today we would say, to do something. Let's do something. Uh, You remember the key role that Epaphroditus has had in this epistle. Uh, The Philippian believers, represented by their own Epaphroditus, at great risk to life and limb, had come to Paul's aid. Uh, These were incredibly difficult times for followers of Christ. And their commitment put them at risk in every way. They suffered economically. But time and time again, this church, this congregation at Philippi, sacrificially gave to the, to the spiritual and the financial support of this missionary now in prison for the faith. Notice Paul's uh, testimonial concerning this in verses 15 and 16. Are you there with me? Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. This was a giving church. Remember we said at the beginning of our studies, if you were here, this is the first church in all of Europe to be founded by a missionary whose name is Paul. Note two, then, it also has the distinction of being the first church with a missions program. Not only the first church, but when Paul writes here, he says they were the only church supporting the missionary enterprise in the first century. And before I go any further, I thought to myself, what an example this church is for us here at Good Shepherd. When your leadership sets one of our missionaries or even a new missionary before you, we pray that together our spontaneous and our corporate response will be, what can we do to help? How can we give? The apostle is thanking them, and this is not the first time even in this letter. He lets them know that their giving, he says, was a cause for his great rejoicing. Now, I want you to note right away, his great rejoicing isn't in the money. He says his great rejoicing is in the Lord. See it there in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me, that is, for my financial support. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Uh, there was apparently a period of time where the regular support they were giving was not able to get to Paul to meet needs. And he says, But I thank the Lord, I rejoice. In the Lord that once again you have been uh, put in the place where you can support the work of the gospel. I want to say again it's important to note that most of these last words in this lovely epistle of the apostle. Is really all about money. And there's no awkwardness here on the apostles part. In fact it's quite refreshing to note that the apostle will make his thank you note a teachable moment. He knows that the most common human response in our fallenness is to link the condition of our bank accounts to the perennial struggle for what he calls contentment. He's writing a thank you note to thank them for their financial support. But he will set that issue somewhat aside and use it only for illustrative purposes. He says to himself by the Holy Spirit, here's my opportunity to teach a biblical truth on a universal problem. Somewhere deep-seated in our fallenness is this notion that if only we had enough, then finally we would be content. Our stubborn hearts deceive us into thinking, if only I had the resources, which really is a euphemism for enough money, I would finally be content. Paul is giving them and us today a spiritual reality check at this point, and that's what we want to see. He certainly wants the church to know that he is grateful for their financial support. But he would not for a moment want them to think that their money was somehow the source of his ability to persevere in prison. Nor does he want them to think for a moment that their money is the source of his joy in every kind of circumstance that he's so often spoken about throughout the letter. And so what does he do? He no sooner thanks them for their financial support, but rather abruptly wants them to know that his contentment does not spring from their generosity. You'll see this in verses 11 and 12. He says to them, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content." in whatever circumstances I am, as if to say, and it has nothing to do with money. I know, he says, how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, he says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. Now look, he's not minimizing their sacrificial giving. In fact, what does he say in verse 14? Look there. He says, nevertheless, as if to say, even though I've learned the secret of contentment regardless of what I have or don't have, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now come down to verse 18, where he wants to bless them for their gift by telling them how God himself has received their offerings. Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. What does he call what they put in the offering plate. And it's a test for these offering plates here at my feet this morning. Would we collectively say how wonderful that the Lord has received our monies as, quote, into verse 18, a fragrant aroma, like the incense of God's people praying, has risen to his nostrils in worship? an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I wonder if those thoughts entered your mind as you wrote your check for the support of this ministry here through Good Shepherd Church. You know, this is one of those many scriptures that remind us, when you hear the words and you hear them every week, the ushers come forward now To receive your offering. This scripture and many others demonstrate that that phrase, as the ushers come forward, is as much a part of your worship and mine as when we pray together, as when we read the scriptures or turn to the hymnal in order to offer songs of praise, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So Paul is saying, all of your giving to me is wonderful. It is even an act of worship on your part. But having my financial needs met, even in abundance, he says, is not the source of my contentment. So Paul, please tell us what you have learned and what God has himself taught you about this seeming elusive thing that we call contentment. Now, the answer to this particular mystery in life does lie in the spirit-wrought words of verses 11 through 13. So that's the portion of this text which we'll focus on for just a moment. Because verses 11 through 13 contain simply astounding truth for every child of God. Let's take the three verses together and then we'll uh, detail the findings here. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. If you and I want to pursue the excellence of contentment, then I think we do well to inspect the particulars in Paul's extraordinary example, don't you think? Contentment is something... Paul says he had to learn. Contentment is something that must be learned by life's experiences, circumstances, both good and bad. Contentment is something you have to learn even if you've got all the money in the world in your bank account or if you have nothing. Contentment is still something, Paul says, you have to learn. And the irony, as we shall see, is that Paul says his contentment doesn't come by way of any of these varied circumstances. He learned to be content in every kind of circumstance. That says to me that if we haven't got a hold of this yet, we can at least, by faith as God's people, begin to look at whatever may be our set of circumstances right now even if they are uncomfortable ones, and know that God is wanting to teach us something. In this case, he wants his apostle to learn contentment. Contentment is something that must be learned and by by life's experiences, both good and bad. Now, what did Paul learn from life's circumstances? Even before he learned the secret of contentment, Well, he learned some extremely practical lessons just in the course of life. He's telling us he learned, for example, how to get along in this world on very little. Hey, that's a pretty important lesson, I would say, for our generation to learn. He says, I know how. I've learned how to get along with next to nothing, with very humble means. I've had people say to me, I can't get along on less than, right? But he says, I, I've learned how to get along. You have to understand, folks, this is the first century. Paul didn't have a MasterCard. He didn't have Visa. He often left home without his American Express card. But he at least, well, he knew how to make tents. He learned the discipline, and we have that evidence in other epistles, There were times when he had no financial support for the ministry that God had called him to, and so he went back to selling tents. He would do whatever he had to do from his part to make ends meet. That's a tough discipline in our day. We are so soft and so spoiled that should there come much of a financial crunch along the way, I wonder how we'd make ends meet or whether we have forgotten Just what it means to go back to work if necessary. So on the journey to contentment, he also had to learn how to handle seasons of prosperity. Now there's a trial I'd like to have. Oh, that God would just give me a test by giving me a lot. He said he had it at one time. And yet Paul learned something about prosperity as well. And Scripture comments on these matters. Let the Bible speak for itself. Hey, this is worth being a little bit late for lunch. Psalm 62.10 counsels this, and I quote, If riches increase, and wouldn't that be nice, do not set your heart on them. The wisest and at one time the wealthiest man who ever lived got to the point where he prayed this prayer to the Lord. It's in Proverbs 30. Here's what he prayed. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I might not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Who needs them? or that I not be in such want, and end up stealing and profane the name of the Lord. There's some wisdom there in Solomon's prayer. Now, that text is not a a proof text for contentment. But as the wisdom literature of the Bible is meant to do, it acknowledges the very common pitfalls we have in our thinking. That what we have, or what we don't have, should or could somehow determine my commitment to the Lord. New Testament passages suggest that we learn contentment by starting with whatever present circumstance in which we find ourselves. The apostle advises the poor young pastor Timothy that he, having a little food and some clothes to wear, ought to learn to be content. That's in the pastoral epistle. The author of Hebrews, who just may be the same apostle, writes in Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And then he says, being content with such things as you have, as you already have. Then our Lord Jesus ups the ante. Don't you think when it's recorded in Luke 3 and verse 14 that he said to a group of enlisted men, soldiers, quote, be content with your wages. Now, there's nothing in what I've just related to suggest that a Christian should not work harder or labor to improve his lot or that we shouldn't pursue a degree of financial responsibility with accountability In some cases, it is more than appropriate for a believer to ask for a raise. The servant is worthy of his hire. And you'll remember too that Jesus warned employers to not be stingy or greedy at the expense of the employee. But all of the biblical references are clearly telling us what we should already know by now. Contentment has nothing to do With money. It takes an exercise, I think, of genuine faith to take God at His word on this. But right now, there are any number of people sitting in this room, I just know it because I have the same struggles in my own life. We find it very difficult to shake off the idea that our financial status has something to do with our contentment, our peace and our hope for joy in life. This requires courageous faith to reject those lies of the heart. Now back to our focus text here, verse 12 in the second half of it. There is a secret, Paul says, to being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Well, what's your secret, Paul? If it isn't money, what's the answer? How can we experience contentment in every situation and circumstance? And I emphasized in my first reading the answer. It is verse 13. It may not be the answer we were hoping for. It is the answer. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. You know, at the time of this writing, Paul's writing, probably just a few years later, maybe seven or eight years, the scholars tell us, Paul will have to say within his own heart, I can even march to the Roman block and lay my head upon the cold stone and wait the executioner's sword. Because at that hour, at that moment, as he has all along, Christ will strengthen me. I can endure even more. I can accomplish everything the Lord has given me to do because he himself, Paul will say, has granted to me the power. His enabling grace will sustain me in my last hour. And that's why he can write in this same letter, why to depart and to go be with the Lord is a far better thing. The life I live, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I like what our Heavenly Father says about the offer of his own Son to be our Savior. He basically says, if I have given you him, which is to say my best, and if he has laid down his life, how will I not also freely give you all things? That is everything you need. I can do all things, not because of my bank account. I can do all things because Christ enables me, strengthens me, provides for me, helps me. I read Hebrews thirteen five, <clears throat> but I didn't read all the verse. Preachers shouldn't do that. So I'm going to read all the verse now. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, are you ready? What has God said? And this you can take to the bank. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If like Paul, you really believe this about your Lord, You will know the sweet peace of joy in the journey, peace for each day. You will learn contentment. So let me say again, contentment has nothing to do with gaining the objects of fleshly desire. It has to do with confidence in the goodness of God and the nearness of Christ. Contentment, you see, means soul sufficiency i like that definition contentment means to have soul sufficiency it means that you can do all things through him who strengthens you no matter what the future holds let's have a show of hands those here this morning who know what the future holds I said, what the future holds? Well, you do in a certain sense. Because you know who holds the future, and he holds you. Paul's about to say farewell, and we're about to say farewell to this Philippian series. He thanks them for their gift again, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Can you believe that? Did you know that when these offering plates went by and you gave to the Lord's work, that you weren't giving, you were investing? Something that will pay eternal dividends? He said, I'm glad you gave because blessings will increase to your account, profit. In fact, Paul says, don't worry about this matter of sacrificial giving, some people worry about how much to give. He said, don't worry about it. Verse, verse 19, my God, who will? My God will supply all your needs according to what? What you have in the bank? No, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you are sitting there, and you're a little under conviction right now, And what keeps welling up in your breast are these words, but pastor, but pastor. We understand the spiritual, but we live in a pretty real world of material and physical and financial need. But pastor, no. You embrace this truth by faith. You can take it to the bank. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The one who said, I'm not leaving and I'm not forsaking you and I am concerned about your daily bread and I will take care of you. Now stand together with me. You were waiting for those words so patiently, but stand together with me. I want to uh, close this whole sermon series as well as this service today with Paul's own benediction here. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says to them, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> those are the ones he won to Christ, remember, while in prison. And the grace, the grace, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And God's people said, Amen.